to the DNET Stumps podcast, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Well, as always, it is a great pleasure to have you along on the Dean at Stumps podcast. Hello and welcome. If you just joined us for the first time, there is quite a bit for you to listen to other than what will be a very, very good couple of episodes. You can certainly listen to the likes of conversations I've had with Andy Flower, Grant Flower, Tatinda Taibu, Henry Longa, Adam Gilchrist, Jason Gillespie, Alan Donald, Dave Houghton, and many, many more. But uh, for the next couple of episodes, myself and veteran broadcaster Neil Manthorpe will be catching up and we'll be talking about commentary, about the game, about matches that we've covered, matches that we've covered together as well, but just a good old cricket conversation and a conversation of life in general. And of course, in the pipeline, we also have conversations with the likes of Sean Pollock, and a rather unique situation I found myself in when I was able to speak to Mark and Alan Butcher. So Alan being the father, Mark being the son. And that podcast certainly had no structure to it, but it, goodness me, it was a great deal of fun. Right, so let's get into the meat and potatoes of it, shall we? So Neil Manthorpe has been around for a long, long time. He started doing radio commentary in the late 1980s. But when South Africa were, were readmitted to the international scene in late 1991, he then started to become a lot more regular on radio, did a lot of domestic cricket, which is something that if you were around in South Africa back in the early 1990s and, dare I say, before that, you certainly would have enjoyed endless hours of four-day cricket and one-day cricket as well. But Neil then started to establish himself not only as a well-known radio commentator in South Africa, but around the world, because he's also had a couple of very big gigs with TalkSport 2, where he certainly made quite a name for himself as well. So, when South Africa were readmitted to international cricket, which was back in 1991, a very hastily arranged tour to India was organised. Three one-day internationals, a team which is captained by Clive Rice, and uh, certainly something that was remembered with a great deal of fondness because, as Neil Manthorpe explains, uh, it wasn't so long ago, or, well, put it this way, when the tour was announced, it wasn't even sure whether South Africa were going to be a part of the World Cup. Suddenly they were off to India and they were also a part of the World Cup. So uh, although Neil Manthorpe wasn't a part of that particular commentary team and he didn't go to India, he still remembers it very vividly. I didn't, Dean. Um, it all happened so quickly. Yeah, it did. Um, if you if you recall, I mean, the the, the team were um, given uh, a week's notice, quite literally, um, and it would have been completely impossible for for all the South African passport holders um, in, under normal circumstances because uh, there was no diplomatic relationships between India and South Africa back then, um, and it all had to uh, be rushed through. Uh, at, uh, at embassy level and uh, and in fact presidential level, um, and uh, it was it was impossible. Um, you know the plane was chartered over there. And it was I mean we could we, it was it was barely on television. Uh, the reception and the satellite service was so poor it looked like terrible. it was snowing in Delhi from, <laughs> from where we were looking on television. <laughs> but uh, that third and final one day international that that actually was how I actually started to enjoy the game of cricket and and want to follow it. 
I mean, I just remember listening to the radio commentary and uh, obviously for South Af- for the benefit of South African listeners, Gerald de Kock, an incredibly well-known radio commentator, he was there. And just listening, all, all I heard was a bunch of, you know, fireworks going off, these incredible fireworks. And somewhere amongst eighty or 90,000 fanatical people, you could hear poor old Gerald trying to describe what was going on. But that incredible run chase by South Africa, so chasing 287. And they got there for the loss of two wickets, Peter Kirsten, Kepler Vessels, and Adrian Caper scoring all the runs. And I, think I was going to say, yeah. I was going to say, Dean, that wasn't fireworks you were hearing. That was Adrian Caper. <laughs> um, I mean, it, you know, it was it was for South Africans. It wasn't that unusual because um, he he'd done something very similar, scoring a hundred off off sixty uh, odd balls against the England Rebels in Bloemfontein yeah. uh, in in uh, nineteen eighty six. But um, for for the Indians, certainly, I mean, it would look like he'd just come from the moon. They were play, He was playing a, a brand of cricket. Do you, I mean, remember back then, in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, if you scored a runnable hundred, you know, that was back page oh, headline absolutely. news. Absolutely. Um, but but Caper, then I can't remember the numbers. You you've got a memory <laughs> like like a herd of elephants, so you'll be able to remind. But it was something like sixty or forty balls, yeah, which. Yeah, which isn't bad going these days, but uh, in the, back then it was really only Adrian Caper and probably Viv Richards who were capable of scoring like that. That's a very good point you make. And, and the fact that South Africa actually got there for the loss of just two wickets, admittedly the pitch was probably a good one, but you still need to be able to, to play the shots and put the bad ball away. And and that's exactly what they did. And I mean, the whole Indian crowd just took to Adrian Caper. Do you remember in the first one day international when he hit that massive six and the entire crowd... Uh, stood up and applauded. It was just one six that was hit, and they applauded as if he'd just got a hundred and won the game for South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've written um, extensively on on that tour. It's in my book, um, twenty years, twenty matches, celebrating the the uh, the first twenty years of uh, of the return to international cricket. Um, and I and so I spoke to every member of the squad, um, and I've interviewed them extensively and. They admit that really, you know, they they would they would. It, we always we often say when you win a, a game when the series is lost, it's it's really no consolation. But that was a huge consolation to them because the, the, they were just overwhelmed. They were completely overwhelmed by the occasion, not by the opposition necessarily, um, but just the and, and and when I say occasion, forget the fact that there were sixty thousand people or forty thousand people, yeah. depending on where those first two one days were played. It was the occasion of international cricket. I mean, two weeks earlier, they were, they were you know, they was they were still talking about perhaps playing in the World Cup, um, and it, so it was um, just a, a enormous, enormous significance. The significance was almost lost on the players themselves. But you know that open top bus ride from the airport when they arrived, the, the crowd were ten deep along yeah. the side of the road. I mean, for guys like Richard Snell, for example, you know, he was he was a, he was a, a physiotherapy student and he, he was still a student. You know, he was the guy that was eating beans on toast two meals a day. And suddenly there he is um, on, on the world stage. Um, and they, they were just blown away. Even Clive Rice describes how he sort of looked around. And, and Jimmy Cook, of course, you know, was also deep into the autumn of his, of his career, getting a taste of international cricket. But... Um, and Clive Rice describes how he sort of looked around and he just saw this this uh, this changing room full of of bright um, 
rabbits in headlight type eyes. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, even Clive Rice and Jimmy Cook, who'd played getting on two decades. Well, Rice had played two Absolutely, decades yeah. of, um, of domestic cricket. You know, I think, I think actually, to be honest, even Clive Rice, if he'd looked in the mirror at that moment <laughs> during those first two one days, he probably would have seen rabbit and headlight eyes in his own heads. <laughs> and, I mean, as you rightly say, they had played two decades, Rice and, and Cook. I, I guess the one thing that did help some of the players, Alan Donald having played a, a, some cricket for Warwickshire, uh, Clive Rice, he was with... Did he always play for Nottinghamshire? Um, I know that yes, he coached Yes, them. he did. Yes. And don't forget, we, we, uh, there was one player with proper international experience as opposed to Kepler rebel Vessels. international experience, and that was Kepler Vessels. Absolutely. So, so he, he, was, he certainly had, you know, the, the, probably the calmest uh, head, and, and, um, but, but there were a lot of rookies. Yeah, Clive Rice was an absolute Nottinghamshire legend, wasn't he, with, uh, along with, with Richard Hadley winning a couple of championships, uh, county championships. Um, and uh, there, there were a few. Peter Kirsten, remember, mm -hmm. he played uh, thirteen or fourteen years for Derbyshire yeah. as well. Absolutely right, Manners. So, so then that that was done and dusted. And and I remember arriving in. So I was in South Africa as a young teenager doing my schooling in Worcester, which is situated not too far from where you are, about a hundred and maybe ten or so kilometers from where you are. Um, You're not pronouncing it right, Dean. Come on. Do you have to say it, Worcester? Wooster. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right, Wooster. Yeah, if my Afrikaans mates were listening, they would uh, they'd be hauling me over the coals for that. Um, but suddenly, cricket came alive. I mean, everybody used to listen or watch, you know, listen to, or, and watch the what was then known as Curry Cup and the Benson and Hedges cricket, and, and you know, which was a one-day format. But that tour to India just ignited cricket, and suddenly everybody was talking about Alan Donald and Will. You know, do you remember Andrew Hudson? Unfortunately, really had a tough time of it. Would Hudson make the the World Cup squad? And then he suddenly started to score loads and loads of runs for Natal in that very interesting and tricky period leading up to the announcement of the World Cup. Then you had the debacle of Peter Kirsten initially not being selected to go to the World Cup, if you remember when the first squad was announced in late December. And then luckily, the thank goodness, the selectors had a rethink, included Peter Kirsten, left Jimmy Cook out, and really put the cat amongst the pigeons by announcing Kepler Vessels as a captain as opposed to Clive Rice. I think everybody kind of assumed that because Clive Rice captained South Africa in those three one-day internationals to India, that he would be the captain of the team going to the World Cup, and, and yet they sprung a surprise by announcing Kepler Vessels as captain. I mean, it, it must have been interesting for you following that all of these developments as well. It was. Um, no no question. I mean, uh, it was, it was um, Jimmy Cook, who was not known at any stage in his life before that time or afterwards to have anything approaching a an acerbic or, or, or vinegary tongue. Mm. He did say, um, what are we doing, selecting a cricket team or a team of athletes? Because there was um, uh, none too subtle references to the fact that the team looked a bit old in India. Um, and as you say, the three oldest members of the squad uh, were initially left out, not selected. Uh, but there was such an outcry, and, and I mean a real proper outcry. You know, the, the supporters were, were up in arms. There, were, there, were, <laughs> there was even threats of, uh, of protest marches. I mean, it was so, so absurd 
in retrospect, um, considering everything that the country had been through and was still set to go through. I mean, you know, we, we, we were still, in, you know, theoretically, um, well, legally, um, operating under the apartheid system. Yeah. And there we were um, <laughs> protesting. Um, and mostly uh, the vast majority of uh, protesters were, were, of course, white. It was very much a white game in, in South Africa. They know all, you know, it was that the United Cricket Board of South Africa had been formed, but in largely in name only. Um, but as, as you said, you know, Peter Kirsten was selected and finished as the tournament's third top scorer. <laughs> and for a bonus five points, Dean, who were the top two scorers? Oh, my goodness mm. me. Uh, I would say Martin Crowe may have been amongst them, possibly. Martin Crowe? Um, and... Javed uh, Meander, well done. Yes, Javed give you two and a half points. All right, I was actually going to say Ramis Raja, but no, Ramis Raja actually had the highest, the joint highest individual score of the 1992 World Cup. He and do you know who it was who had the uh, who had the joint highest score with him? It'll be very interesting if you get this one. <laughs> oh. Ooh, um, the the highest the, individual score. Yes, it was. I'll give you a clue. They were both 119 not out. The one was scored by an opening... Uh, and they were both by opening batsmen at that time. The one was scored against New Zealand. That was obviously Rami's... So it wasn't Mark Greatbatch then? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't actually. Uh, he was a left-hander, but not Mark Greatbatch. I will put it, I'll put you out of your misery very shortly, but have a go. Um, give me the country, Dean. <clears throat> if I give it the country, it'll be a, a, a complete getaway, a, a giveaway. Should I say the country was Zimbabwe of all people? So well, it wasn't Alistair Campbell. No, no. Andy Flower in those days opened the battle with Wayne Flower, James, right. yeah, and it, uh, it was in that that what was then perceived to be that game of madness. Did you remember that high-scoring game? Uh, it was in New Plymouth or somewhere, In New Plymouth, Zimbabwe, Sri Lanka. And everybody thought Zimbabwe had won the game when they scored 312 for four. And along came Sri Lanka and knocked it down with about five or six balls to spare. Just at a canter. I mean, goodness me. Uh, I can assure you there were many Zimbabweans who were reduced to tears, actual physical tears. And you're speaking to one now, it has to be said. I remember listening to the news bulletin because obviously in those days there were no internet or, or satellite television. So I had to follow the news. And it was the news at one o'clock, read by Stella Hare. I wonder if you remember her. She was a, a news reader on the English broadcasters. And she said that uh, she announced that Zimbabwe had lost by three wickets to Sri Lanka and uh, well as a 15 year old I was not able to hold back the tears of disappointment and anguish and frustration and anger uh, but yeah the, the one small consolation was that Andy Flower was a joint individual uh, top scorer alongside the great Rami Raja in the 1992 World Cup. I thought you were describing South Africa's World Cup semi-final against Australia in '99. If I was a South African, and if that, had, or if that had happened to me as a Zimbabwean, if I'd already been tearful just because Zimbabwe lost a game, <laughs> I don't know what would have happened in, in that particular game. So the '92 World Cup was interesting, man, is because in in many people's opinion, South Africa banked a bit too much on their bowling and fielding, which nobody really knew much about, because again, there wasn't a great deal of video footage. Um, and the way that they chased down 287 against India in India shortly before the World Cup 
many people felt that they that the batting would be quite sort of aggressive, but they were quite reserved, weren't they? It was the age-old cricket where Kepler Vessels and Andrew Hudson would try and have a very solid opening stand, even if they'd only scored 60 runs after 20 overs. They felt that their middle order could do enough to post just over 200 in their 50 overs and then defend it, which, to be fair, they probably did on... on Two occasions, they lost to Sri Lanka and they lost to New Zealand. But all the other games, when they batted first, they defended. Oh, and they lost to England as well, of course, didn't they, to SCG. Um, so, so in the round-robin stages I'm referring to. I mean, it was, it was quite frustrating because the batting would be so slow. Peter Kirsten would, would be the only run scorer. But then along came Donald, Pringle, Macmillan and Snell. And you just couldn't do a, a thing with their bowling. And the fielding was, they, they fielded like tigers, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, it was a different game. Um, and it, it literally, I mean, you know, there were different rules, regulations, playing conditions. It was, it was entirely a different game. And South Africa were a product of their captain. You know, it was said of uh, Kepler Vessels that, uh, you know, his idea of, uh, of taking a chance was uh, going to bed without his pyjama top on. Um, you know, that, that was a, on, a, on a risky day. Um, and that's not true. And I'm very close to Kepler, and I know that, that uh, he'll smile at that, at that <laughs> suggestion. But he he had played international cricket, and once again, his his entire as a Test match captain, um, his first duty was to make sure the game could not be lost. Right. And as as a, and as a one day captain, his first duty was to just be competitive. Um, and it may sound ultra-conservative now and, and even a little negative and a little defeatist. But he just wanted the team to be competitive. He knew that they were the best fielding side in the world, um, led, of course, by John T. Rhodes. Mm. Um, and he knew that uh, they... I mean, because 50-over cricket was, as you say, the, the B&H Night Series. South Africa were, in many ways, ahead of... of, uh, of not, not in international experience, obviously, but... Uh, uh, the way that they had, um, the style that they had developed was in many ways ahead of, of a lot of the other teams. And you're right, you know, he, he just wanted them not to be bowled out for 120. Um, and he took the view when he opened the batting or, or batted at three that they just needed to get to the 30th over or the 35th over with seven or eight wickets in hand. And then, and then, go roaring along at about five and over um, and, and get to, to 220. Um, and that was the way that they played the game and it worked for them. It, um, it only came unstuck in on the 96 tour of Pakistan. I don't know if you remember that, oh, South Africa. Because, yes, I mean, they, they needed to be something in the pitch for the seamers yeah. um, and there always was in South Africa. Pace, bounce, bit of grass, bit of seam movement. Richard Snell could, could swing, you know, bowl beautiful away swingers, as did Merrick Pringle. Um, and they had Alan Donald and, and Fanny de Villiers, um, as you said, Macmillan, Matthews, you know, a whole bunch of really good seamers. And in those days, uh, the Yorker was still the the weapon of choice, and they were all very good Yorker bowlers. And um, and so so they, that's it, it worked. Um, and in retrospect, it, it seemed uh, a little <laughs> dull. Um, it wasn't very exciting. You look back at those scorecards, and you think. How did they? How, how did they defend two hundred and ten? And you know, and other uh, even less than that. You know, yeah, they, they defended one hundred and sixty, one hundred and seventy yeah. various times in ODIs in the early nineties. Um, but as I said, you know, there were no field restrictions as there are today, and 
it was it, it just in yeah a, a different era. It was a different era. I mean, do you remember in 1993, for example, the triangular series that was South Africa, the West Indies, and Pakistan? And I remember the captain, Richie Richardson, of the West Indies saying, it is going to be an art gallery of fast bowling. And he was 100% correct. Again, so you had Waka Yunus, Wasim Akram, Kirtley Ambrose, Courtney Walsh, Alan Donald. They were the five genuine pace bowlers. And then in between, you'd have a little bit of Brian Lara, Javad Miandad. So, but the ball dominated the bat a bit too much, in my opinion, in that series. But one of the things that really stood out for me was whenever South Africa played Pakistan in 1993. And there's one game in particular that will always spring to mind, and that was Pakistan versus South Africa, the opening game. So Pakistan batting first, 208 for six in their 50 overs, Asif Mushtaba 49 not out, Javed Miand had 49. And everybody thought when South Africa had reached 100 for no wicket, and I remember this was our school swimming gala, and there was a teacher who was giving us updates all the time, and uh, it was Andrew Hudson and Kepler Vessels, an opening stand of 100. Mushtaq Ahmed, the leg spinner, dismissed Andrew Hudson. Unfortunately, Hudders uh, always did have a bit of an issue against spin, as you, as you remember. And goodness me, the next thing, Waka Yunus came back for that second. South maybe, Africa were cruising. They were cruising. They were cruising. 174. Our listeners will have to um, look up these because I haven't got that scorecard in front of me. And my memory's <laughs> never going to be as good as yours. It's far, I'm far too old now. But I recall that South Africa needed about 30. And overs and time wasn't an issue at all. I mean, they needed 30 or 35 from 10 overs with six wickets yes, in hand, it yes. was it was that dramatic. I mean, they they, they were, you know, they, they weren't just within sight of the finishing line. They they could see into the whites of the of the eyes of the people holding the finishing tape. <laughs> That's how close they were. Yeah. And as you said, Wackar came back, and that was the first experience <laughs> that many of those great batsmen had of seeing reverse swing. They, I mean, it wasn't a thing in South Africa. No. They, you know, everyone shined the ball on one side and, <laughs> and swung it conventionally. And that's, that's just what they did. But uh, when, when Waka started bowling those huge, booming, <laughs> in-swinging Yorkers, uh, I'd seen it. I'd seen Waka in county cricket. Um, so it wasn't entirely unexpected to me. But that was one of the most dramatic examples. Oh, and then Wasim Akram in East London, again, the same story. Javad Meander setting it up nicely with 100 in a rain-affected game. Along comes Wasim and Hansi Cronier, Jaunty Rhodes at the crease, and they were even ahead of the run rate. Akram comes back, takes five for 19, and there it was. I mean, it was, it was a wonderful exhibition of, of genuine pace bowling, but not only pace, but the ability to get the ball to reverse swing when it really mattered. So for us who didn't really know too much about it, uh, I mean, I, I was lucky enough courtesy to VHS highlights on VHS cassettes that my cousin kindly recorded for me all the time. Um, I did see Waka and Wasim do it in the World Series that featured the West Indies, Pakistan and Australia. But it's a different thing entirely when you watch it on video and it's a different another thing when you, well, I wasn't at the ground, but you certainly were at the ground and actually witnessing it, I mean, it's, it's something totally different. But as you said, South Africa was so good. Do you remember then there was another game at Newlands as well, where South Africa labored and limped to just over 150 against the West Indies at Newlands. I remember you and the late Bob Wilmer commentating at the time, and Hansi Cronier bowled superbly, and the West Indies were beaten by about seven or eight runs in a very low-scoring but thrilling encounter. So that series, Manners, was completely dominated 
by the ball. I wonder why. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny. Let me tell you about uh, something about Bob Woolmer and the team because yeah. obviously yes. he uh, became coach in in 1996. Um, two years earlier, in 1994, he had coached Warwickshire to a historic treble. Um, they, they'd won all three ch um, the championship and the two one day cups in the English county, champion, in county Championship. And then he became coach of South Africa. And I mentioned that his first tour was to Pakistan. Yeah, uh, they had never been to the subcontinent before, so they'd never experienced completely lifeless, flat um, pitches ever before. Um, and um, uh, South Africa lost all six matches. <laughs> they went down, <laughs> love six. Um, and Bob Woolmer said, I, I, remind me never to take up tennis. I've just gone <laughs> down six love in my first tour. Uh, but after that, he said to the to South Africans, they had a team meeting, and he said, guys, we, you, you need to understand a little bit more about ball maintenance. You know, we've seen uh, Wakar and Wazim bowling reverse swing. Um, you know, we did it uh, back in Warwickshire, um, and, and, and there was no skullduggery no, about no, it necessarily. No. I mean, we're not talking bottle tops <laughs> um, you know but there, there were methods that were that were gray not black or white um, for instance they had one designated ball shiner who had to wear 100% polyester trousers which are significantly less comfortable than uh, than the cotton enriched <laughs> in a variety because they form static electricity but but the designated ball shiner stood at mid-off. He wore 100% polyester trousers because they shined the ball more efficiently. And he also had to suck tree ball mints and apply the sugary saliva to one side of the ball to enhance it. So it was that, that kind of thing. And when, when Bob suggested in the team meeting that uh, this is what they needed to do if they were to compete, there was a strong backlash against it. Um, uh, guys like Andrew Hudson, John T. Rhodes, Hansi Cronier, they said, no, that's cheating. We will not be involved in it. Um, and, and Bob said, well, look, it's not, it, it's not cheating. Um, it's, it's just what every team does. And if you want to be competitive, you've got to get your heads around the idea because we just lost 6-0 <laughs> and we're going to carry on <laughs> losing in these conditions unless we can get the ball to swing because it's not going to do anything off the pitch. Yeah. Um, needless to say, eventually they did all come round to the idea that maybe they, that a little bit of ball maintenance was going to be required. <laughs> Goodness me. What a fantastic story. Polyester trousers and tree ball mints. What next, I wonder? What a wonderful story. So that was part one then of uh, what will be a, a number of episodes recorded between myself and Neil Manthorpe, just doing a bit of reminiscing, but then also talking about the game, taking you back in time. I wonder what you were doing. And I guess this will probably in terms of, because we're focusing a bit more on, on South African cricket, I suppose this would benefit the South African listener a bit more. What were you doing back in 1991 when South Africa had that little tour to India under the captaincy of Clive Rice? What were you doing in 1992 with the World Cup and everybody had sleepless nights as we lay awake listening to the radio, watching a bit of television and going to school or going to work bleary-eyed and not being able to concentrate on what the teacher said and even the teacher himself beginning to doze off because he was so very tired of watching Kepler Vessels and his men doing their country proud. Thank you so much for listening to this first edition of Conversations between myself, Dean Duplessis, and Neil Manthorpe. 
And we'll be back again pretty soon with the next installment. But until then, it's goodbye. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. 